tsunami waves can move, and this is remarkable to me, as fast as a jet, and therefore are capable of destroying anything and everything in their path. Of course, we know about that tsunami that hit the day after Christmas in 2004. Uh, there was an undersea, what they called a megathrust earthquake, that struck the west coast of Sumatra, Indonesia. The earthquake had a magnitude of somewhere between 9.1 and 9.3 and is the largest, third largest recorded earthquake in history. And after this earthquake that was said to release the energy, get this, of 23,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs, there was a series of tsunamis that followed. And so 100 feet high, 10-story high waves sped at the speed of a jet plane across the Indian Ocean, devastating 11 coastal countries, including Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and killing over 230,000 people. I think there is no event in the world that better illustrates the comprehensive nature of the future coming judgment than the tsunami. In that day, nothing will be left untouched. And all the judgments that we see in history, for instance, in Israel's history, the exile, the depopulation by the Assyrians, even the Roman destruction of the, the temple in 70 AD, all of these judgments in history are intrusions in time and space of what will be, in a more catastrophic way, what we'll see in the end, in the last day. At this point, Judah has been warned of pending judgment. Now, we know in history that that judgment is going to be expressed through three exiles, three departments into Babylon. It's 40 years out at this point. So Jeremiah is prophesying some four decades before it happens. But the people clearly think that Jeremiah is out of touch with reality. Now, why do they think he is out of touch with reality? Because the churches are full, to use our vernacular. Uh, there are no external threats. All the great enemies of God have kind of been tamed and defeated. And King Josiah has brought about these great religious reforms. Now, I believe King Josiah was a godly king, but the external reforms themselves did not change the hearts of the people. But they thought that it was sufficient. And so Jeremiah is saying, in spite of what you see, judgment is coming. And in verses 5 to 6, you're going to see nine imperative verbs that will be used to stress the urgency of the danger. Notice with me in verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say... Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. 
raise a standard towards Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Now, when danger approached in ancient times, watchmen would blow a trumpet, more precisely, the ram's horn, and they would raise a signal to warn everyone to flee uh, to the safety of the walled cities. The danger is coming from the north. Now, that could be the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but we know from history that it's going to be the Babylonians that will come, and they will come seeking its prey and will devastate the land. Now, in verses 7 to 13, there's going to be several metaphors used to describe the enemy. Notice in verse 7, a lion. In verse 11, a hot wind. Verse 12, a wind. Um, verse 13, uh, they were, this enemy will be like clouds, a whirlwind. Um, and so several metaphors are going to be used. Just keep, uh, be aware of that. Uh, horses faster than eagles. Horses swifter than eagles. That's the enemy. Look with me in verse 7. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. And so this is very likely the Babylonians uh, because in the rest of Jeremiah, he's going to allude clearly to the Babylonians as the destroyer. And such an utter disaster will lead everyone in Judah to mourn. Verse 8, For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. You know, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. At the end of the day, we're not getting out of this world without mourning. So the question is, when are you mourning? Are you, are you mourning before judgment comes so that you can repent? Or are you going to be mourning after judgment has fallen? But we're not getting out of this world without mourning. And here, it's a parent that their, their mourning is a result of the judgment that is going to, to fall. He says, for this, verse 8, put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Sackcloth is a traditional ancient Near Eastern cultural symbol of mourning. And though the coming assault is in part the result of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians' expansionist policies. They're just trying to expand their kingdom. For them, it's, it's about politics. Um, in the end, and ultimately, it's the Lord's judgment that lies behind the judgment. We need to keep that in mind. God can use, He does not cause evil, but He can use evil in a sovereign way to bring about his purposes. We know that the classic and the most uh, remarkable example of that is the cross. Because you see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that there are groups that are indicted for crucifying Jesus to the cross and yet it was according to God's predetermined and set plan. And so the Babylonians are not thinking we are tools in the hands of God. 
the Babylonians are thinking, we want that land. All right, this land is important for trade and everything else. Where Israel was situated was right in the middle of where the major trade routes would have been when found. And so they wanted that land. They have, they're not even thinking about being the rods of God's discipline. And yet ultimately we see that it is God that's behind this judgment. And every human leader, no matter how gifted, no matter how charismatic they may be, will either be scared or stunned in that day. In that day, verse 9, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priest shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Now the prophets he's referring to are the false prophets. We have them today, by the way. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's Jeremiah 6. And in that day, they're going to be scared and they're going to be astounded. There's nothing they're going to be able to do about it. In spite of these warnings, the people refuse to repent because they continue to embrace the words of these false prophets who insist there's going to be peace. We're the people of God. Why would God judge these, us? Jeremiah 7, he's going to mimic, he's going to mock them when he says, the temple, the temple. They believe because they are the people of the temple that God would, would never judge them. Indeed, most of the prophets in Jeremiah's day were false. Verse 10, then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. Now, what is he saying here? Earlier I said it's the false prophets. That's going to be brought out more clearly in chapter 6. But here, Jeremiah attributes these things to God, the deceptions to God. So what gives? Well, the embrace of false prophecy is itself a fitting judgment that the Lord sends on people who reject the truth. It goes back to Romans 1 where God says, okay, you want this? You want to exchange the truth for a lie? I will give you over. That's part of the judgment. And so, for instance, in 1 Kings, or 1 Kings chapter 22, this text clearly says that God put a lying spirit in the false prophets so that King Ahab would be deceived. Now, he's not, ta he's not saying, that text is not telling us that Ahab it would be a, a lover of truth had that not happened. Ahab hated the truth. He hated God. He hated the law of God. And so God said, okay, you want to hate my law? I will give you over. That's what he did with Pharaoh. At places in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In other places, it says that God hardened his heart. Pharaoh was not dispositioned to sing how great thou art pharaoh hated god he hated everything about god remember when he asked moses who is the lord and god says okay you want to reject my lordship i will give you over and i think that's what he's talking about here 
but Jeremiah is struggling with it because he recognizes ultimately that it's the judgment of God. Now notice in verse 11, At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind. Now again, that's a metaphor for judgment, the Babylonian judgment. A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. This is referring to the Babylonians. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Now, in Israel, there's a kind of wind called the Sirocco. The Sirocco. The, the Sirocco wind was too dry to be refreshed by it and too strong to separate the wheat from the chaff. There was nothing beneficial about the Sirocco. It, it, it comes from the desert and it causes devastation. It can last from three days to two weeks. Jeremiah is using that metaphor, something they would have understood. Again, let me explain. When metaphors are used in the Bible, the writer assumes you have cultural competency. You see what I mean? When, when these metaphors are used, they may, not be, they may be foreign to us. And that's why it's important we read, you know, dictionary, Bible dictionaries, these kinds of things. But these metaphors would have been very clear to the original audience. And so what he's referring to here is the Sirocco. And he is saying the kind of wind that brings destruction on you, that's a picture of the judgment that's coming. Hence verse 14, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts Lodge within you. I'm going to come back to verse 14 in, the, in a few minutes. That's a very important verse. But notice verse 15. For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he's coming. Announce to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Here is the strange but glorious irony about this. The one who's going to unleash his judgment is the same one who is giving his people a warning that it's coming. As we saw in verse 6, he said, flee to safety. Think about that. And this isn't new. Uh, Ezekiel was posted as God's sentry to give warning to his people that God was on his way against them. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 3. Christopher J.H. Wright says this. Listen, what human enemy appoints a sentry to give warning to the very city that they're about to attack? So God is saying, I'm coming. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming through the Babylonians, but I'm coming. And I'm bringing judgment to you. And Christopher Wright says, what enemy would do that? Enemies, they attack in a way 
where they catch you off guard and by surprise, correct? But not this one. This is God's way. It's his mercy even in the midst of his judgment. He warns before he judges. Even so, this judgment is going to be comprehensive, reaching even to the heart. Notice verse 18. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. Let me just say this. There will be no victims in hell. Just culprits. We, we need to understand that. There will be no victims. God and his justice is perfect. It is righteous. It is holy. And it's informed by a comprehensive, fundamental omniscience. We, we see injustice all the time. I mean, we remember a famous athlete in 1994 who, who, you know, beat the system. Injustice. It happens all the time. In that day, there will be no injustice. He says, your ways, your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom. It is bitter. It has reached your very heart. Now, it's easy to relegate uh, this to Jeremiah's time, but the reality, and this is why this is Scripture, we share the same fallen condition. Our circumstances may be different, but we are not more or less in Adam than this original audience. They didn't have more or less of a sin nature than us. All right? And so this applies the same to us though our circumstances may be different the heart is the same and I would say don't we have the same problem with idols our idolatry is much more sophisticated than perhaps the worship of Baal and Asher and that kind of thing but we have the same problem with God replacements this morning we're talking about jealousy jealousy is the fruit of a God replacement ruling in our hearts at that moment in time. Now, as Christians, we're not under the dominion of idolatry, but we, we are functional idolaters. We wake up in that state every day. That's why we have to exchange the lie about God for the truth the moment we wake up, because our natural state is sinful. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to fill us because when the Holy Spirit doesn't fill us, we walk in the natural person. And the natural person is an idolater by nature. And so this text is as much to us, says as much to us as, any, as anything. Success, wealth, pleasure, comfort, fame, beauty. All of these things seem to be anemic issues compared to golden statues. Or compared to someone who would intentionally sacrifice their firstborn son to appease the gods and yet it's no less idolatrous but in verses 19 to 22 we're going to see even though these issues may seem anemic to us we see the effect that it has on jeremiah now why does that matter because jeremiah being filled with the spirit as god's prophet has the perception of these things that we should have. 
he has, he has a, a view of idolatry that we should have and would have if we had God's perspective. Uh, indeed, as God's prophet, he gives us insights into God's heart on these, these issues. In fact, in verses 19 to 22, these verses have been called the cross of Jeremiah. Why is that? Because they reveal his personal anguish over idolatry. And this is so important to us because as we're reading these scriptures and when we see a godly person experience anguish over something, that is the Holy Spirit's signal saying to you, you should have the same anguish. And if you don't have that anguish, something's wrong. You have a spiritual fever. You're not as healthy spiritually as you think you are. Notice in verse 19. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. That's Jeremiah's anguish. That is... A spirit-inspired perspective on the devastation of sin and idolatry, not in the culture, but with the people of God, with the covenant people. Sinners are going to sin. The culture is going to be pagan. That's just given. He's concerned about people who claim the name of Yahweh. And hence the anguish. That word anguish, it's in Hebrew, you would spell it M-E-A-H. And it's a word for intestinal discomfort. He is literally sick to his stomach. He is having stomach pains. And not only does it make him sick to his stomach, he's having heart palpitations. He says, it has reached, this is your doom, it is bitter, it has reached your very heart, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain, oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly, I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. And again, it's 40 years out. 40 years seems like a long time. That was 1979, all right? But for those of us who are old enough to remember 1979, that wasn't a long time ago. It goes by quickly. It's coming. And though it's going to reach Judah's heart, it's the heart of Jeremiah that first feels the pain. In other words, Jeremiah was not smug about God's wrath. There's a word I came across in a biography I'm reading on Grant on Ulysses Grant, and the word was Schadenfreude. Is anybody familiar with that word? Schadenfreude. It's a German word. And I looked it up, and it came in the context of the Mexican War, where he is down there fighting the Mexicans, but the, the writer says, Ron uh, Cherneau says, it was not a, a situation of Schadenfreude. Well, I had to look that up. The word in German means a pleasure derived 
from others' misfortunes. Pleasure derived from others' misfortunes. We've all had that. It's sinister. It's wicked. Jeremiah was not guilty of that. He is taking no satisfaction in the judgment that's coming. And we need to pray that God would raise up more Jeremiah's. Because we spend so much time in the church lamenting the sins of the culture. But again, Jeremiah is not concerned with the sins of the culture. There will be places where the Babylonians are rebuked. But Jeremiah is primarily concerned with the covenant community. Notice in verse 20. Crash falls hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly, my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? The trumpet again being metaphor for the coming judgment. Since the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, those who have rejected the Lord have become fools. And hence the judgment. But this, this notion of being a fool implies not a lack of intellectual capacity, but moral deficiency. Notice in verse 22. The trumpet's coming, verse 21, because verse 22, my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. Now, this next phrase is haunting. They are wise in doing evil. Wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. You know, when you read the Proverbs, you read about two paths. The path of wisdom, which leads to life, and the path of foolishness, which leads to destruction. Uh, the Proverbs leaves us with two kinds of individuals. You're either a wise man, a wise woman, or you're a fool. The way of wisdom, the word wisdom in Hebrew is chatma. It literally means skilled master. It is one who by faith is skilled at doing the will of God, applying the word of God. Paul tells us that our wisdom is from Christ. So we understand under the new covenant that wisdom is skill at applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to every area of our lives. The contrast to that is the way of the fool. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the way leads unto destruction. But notice again this language. They're stupid children. They're wise in doing evil. And I want to submit to you, maybe your translation says skilled in doing evil. Does anybody have that translation? They are skilled in doing evil. Shrewd. Again, the word is mine. It literally means skilled master. I would submit to you, there is no person outside of Christ, outside of faith in Christ, who can't get to that place. It's horrifying. A person's conscience can become so seared that even when he or she is caught, they are convinced that they've done nothing wrong. It's a scary place to be. 
where a person has no moral compass at that point. This appears to be where Judah is. And yet, as bad as things are at this point, worse is yet to come. Verse 23. Now, verses 23 to 31. Scholars tell us this is perhaps the most powerful description in all the prophetic literature on the coming day of the Lord. Now, we understand this side of the resurrection that the day of the Lord comes in two stages. There's an already, but a not yet. Judgment falls. Now, in the day of the Lord, the people of God were to be saved, and the enemies of God were to be judged. God's name would be vindicated in salvation and judgment. That's the day of the Lord, and it's a hope. You see it in all of the prophets. In the Christ event, both judgment and salvation occur. Judgment on Christ as our substitute, salvation in Christ through his resurrection. And so the day of the Lord has been inaugurated by his cross and his resurrection, and yet we await the consummation, the full consummation of the day of the Lord in that final great white throne judgment. And so in the scriptures, when the day of the Lord is used, oftentimes, as with any prophecy, there's an immediate fulfillment, but then there's an ultimate fulfillment. For instance, the seed of Abraham. The seed is promised in Genesis 3, or Genesis 12, 3. And we know that the most immediate fulfillment of that is Isaac. But we know that it's not the ultimate fulfillment. And so there's these immediate fulfillments that kind of whet our appetite of the ultimate fulfillment. That's how prophecy works. It's how typology works. Well, this is speaking of the day of the Lord... And the most immediate fulfillment of that is going to be Babylon coming down on Judah. And this is remarkable language. Notice in verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Now, Jeremiah is writing, this is called prophetic perfect. He's writing as if it's already happened. It hasn't happened yet. But he said, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Does that sound familiar? Exactly. It's because Jeremiah is intentionally echoing the words of Genesis 1. By the way, in a day when a lot of uh, pastors and theologians play loose with the creation account, the prophets didn't. And they took the creation account very literally. And, and, and what you see here is the, the words in Hebrew, tohu wabahu. And you see it in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. There's those words, Genesis 1 and 2. Same exact words found here in verse 23. I looked on the earth, it was without form and void. What does Genesis 1-2 go on to say? And darkness was over the face of the deep. What does verse 23 here say? And to the heavens they had no light. In other words, the coming judgment will be so great, 
It will be like the uncreation of creation. When the Lord created the world, He brought order from chaos. He brought light from darkness and fullness out of emptiness. And when judgment comes, the Lord is going to bring chaos out of perceived order. He's going to bring darkness out of light and emptiness out of fullness. What's he trying to do? He's trying to sober us. He's trying to sober us. He's trying to sober Judah. Philip Ryken likens that day to a documentary film of the creation of the world that's being run backwards. It's going to be an uncreation. Notice in verse 24. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. When Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned, it, it, the curse came on creation, remember? So sin has cosmic effects, and that's why judgment's going to bring cosmic effects. And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. But in the midst of that devastation, there is a small glimmer of hope. In the midst of his anger, God's covenant love is going to govern his anger so that everything is not completely destroyed. Notice 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full in that's the hope out of his steadfast love out of his promises that he made to israel he's not going to bring israel to an ultimate end but having said that judgment awaits verse 28 for this the earth shall mourn the heavens above be dark for i have spoken i have purposed i have not relented nor will i Turn back at the noise of horsemen and archer. Every city takes to flight. They enter thickets. They climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. Of course, we know that that's going to happen ultimately in 586 B.C. with regard to the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy when Jerusalem is ransacked and and. The, Jew, the Jews, or the Judahites, if you will, at that point, they weren't called Jews until after they were exiled. They're taken into to, to captivity, uh, I, I suppose some 500 miles away. It's either 500 or 900 miles Babylon is to, to Jerusalem. And that's the ultimate, fulfill, or the most immediate fulfillment of that. But instead of repenting, in sackcloth, Judah responds, notice in verse 30, by putting on, um, particular clothing, ornaments, finery, in a last appeal to her former lovers. Who are her former lovers? Egypt and the Assyrians. 
In other words, instead of trusting going to the Lord for salvation, they are looking to these pagan nations for their help. And verse 30 says, And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet? He's depicting Judah as dressing like a prostitute. Again, idolatry is spiritual adultery. But it's also called, in Scripture, in Jeremiah, whoredom, spiritual whoredom. And we need to use that language lest we get accustomed, unless we're, unless we're too comfortable with idolatry. So listen to the language. He says, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. In other words, they're trying to beautify themselves so Assyria and the Egyptians will come to their aid against the Babylonians. Your lovers despise you. You see what he's saying? The idols don't love you. They use you. They don't love you. They despise you. They seek your life. That's a word for anything that has taken hold of our hearts that is not God in Christ. Taunting language. And so Judah is seeking, they're going to seek political solutions that involve fruitlessly trusting in human help rather than the Lord. And in 31, verse 31, he's going to shift the metaphor from a prostitute to a woman in labor. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor. Why is he shifting metaphors? There's no one metaphor that can capture the devastation of that day. That's simple what it is. And it's hard to believe that when things are so calm and things are so pleasant and people are so religious exactly what was going on then. I heard a cry of, as of a woman in labor. Who's the woman in labor? Judah. Anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Has anyone ever been next to their wives when she was giving birth? Well, that's tough on men. <laughs> but it's, it's even tougher, tougher on the women. Woe is me. I am fainting before murderers. It's a devastating chapter. Philip Ryken points out that there are two emphases in this passage concerning a response to divine judgment. One is to ignore it. That was Judah, which is the way of death. Another is to lament it. That was Jeremiah, which is the way of tears. But a less emphasized way in this text, but it's there, and we're going to see it later in Jeremiah, is the third way. It's to escape it. It's to escape it. 
which is the way of life. It's dimly alluded to in verse 14. Let's go back to verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil. Now, again, Jeremiah is going to give us plenty of, of text on how to escape this judgment. How to avoid this judgment. In this text, it's verse 14. Wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. Now, it's not certain exactly how Jeremiah would have understood this to, to mean wash your heart. After all, how can Judah wash their hearts from evil? But it most certainly would have involved the sacrificial system and repentance and faith as a response to the faithful administration of the sacrificial system. But we know even greater than they, which means that we have a greater accountability than they. The way to overcome our idols, the way to have our hearts clean, the way to avoid the judgment of idolatry is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing can wash away the stain of sin except the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so in Christ, God says to he who has ears to hear, Wash your heart from evil, that's verse 14, that you may be saved. And God can offer that cleansing promise because of Christ who has taken the wrath in his person. That is alluded to, notice in verse 31 again, that verse that makes every mother shudder. I heard a cries of a woman in labor, anguishes of one giving birth to her first child, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. The glory of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ we can actually draw comfort from these words. Why is that? Because these words were essentially spoken by Jesus as our substitute. In Matthew chapter 26, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then, right after speaking these words, Jesus was killed, verse 31, by murderers. And that's why, in the great day of judgment, one that's only approximated by earthly judgments, like the one that would come on Judah. When creation is uncreated and the heavens and earth are consumed like a tsunami, believers will have nothing to fear because Christ is our refuge. Something that they would not have understood as clearly then, but we now have the light of the gospel to shine upon this. As B.B. Warfield says, the gospel, the Old Testament is like a 
dimly lighted, but richly furnished chamber. But when we shed the light of the New Testament on it, we see how furnished it was all the time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for a people, Lord, who fear judgment, but recognize that judgment has already occurred for us in your Son. And we thank you for that. But Lord, I pray that that would inform our evangelistic efforts as we leave this church this evening. I pray for every believer here. As we see the judgment that awaits for everyone outside of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would open up doors, make us sensitive to those opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that this church would become more of an evangelistic church, a church centered on evangelizing the lost because this text reminds us what awaits those who do not have saving knowledge of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.